0: Pastor Ken challenged me to a race to the pulpit. Whoever got here first got to speak. I'm not much up for that racing, but I've been quiet for a long time, and I'm going to speak this morning. Take your Bibles and turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3 as we give a very elongated introduction to our study in the book of Galatians and to focus on the gospel of Jesus Christ. After that announcement, I want you to ponder something here for, for a moment. Probably most of us, at least in, in the past, never thought we would come to a place in this Western civilization and in the United States where our voices were threatened to be silenced in the public square and even in the context of our homes. And yet that's what we're facing and experiencing today, Uh, street preachers being arrested for preaching the gospel under the pretense of local laws, the world shouting down uh, a biblical worldview as being bigoted and filled with vitriol and hate, and eventually we might find ourselves in Western civilization under the same fate of so many of the Christians in ages past of, of persecution, we don't know what that persecution might look like, but eventually, as it has in so many other civilizations, it may it may mean that we can't gather in the open like we're so used to gathering. Some people think that's fear mongering, but it's a very real possibility. Then, what do we do next? Life groups. We still do what we do. We just do it in smaller ways. We still do it under the authority of the Word. We still build meaningful relationships. And part of what we're trying to do is prepare you for well, the worst-case scenario and pray that that never comes. But if it does, the gospel will not be silent and our voices will not be silent. But how we do church might look a little bit different. But it will always be about the book. It will always be about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it will always be for the glory of God alone. Poor do we live in crazy times. Timothy here's that same message from the Apostle Paul beginning in verse 1 of 2 Timothy 3. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, Arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God yet having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. How do, how do we do that? What does it mean to avoid? What does it mean to, to respond to these sequences in history where the gospel is silenced in secularism, rules and reigns? What are we to do with this, with this text and And what do we do with the message, and what do we do with the gospel to a world that has no tolerance for the things that we wish to communicate with them? This whole study is going to be based upon that, and the next three weeks is going to be based upon an introduction to that. I'm going to ask you to do a little thinking with me as we move forward. We're going to talk about historic events. We're going to talk about a philosophical approach to to preaching and teaching. We're going to talk about the condition of the world. And I pray that in some way we can talk about the way forward. But if you're sitting in anticipation thinking that I'm going to offer you something new and fresh, hold your breath the answer to this is not something new and fresh, it is the gospel according to Jesus Christ. And it's the implications of that gospel that will see us through the tumultuous times in which we live. Pray with me, please. Father, I'd ask that You bless us as we spend this time together this morning that help us as we delve a little bit into this text to be reminded of so many things that we've studied the last 20-some years concerning this text, as Paul pens his last letter, preparing this young pastor for the tidal wave he would soon face in the preaching and the declaration of the gospel. I pray that as we sort it out and and in some way make sense of it all, that we would be thinking people, that we would think biblically about the matters of the day that we would be ready to give an answer to any man who asks us of the reason of the hope that is in us. We would do it with meekness and in fear and in humility, knowing that it is only by grace that we can even speak this truth. But as we prepare ourselves for the study and look at critical information ahead of time, remind us of the condition of our world and show us the reality even that Paul described and explained in the context of 2 Timothy 3. And take us to a place where we find comfort and hope and promise and belief. Take us to the place where the gospel sustains us and keeps us and holds us until it completes us and we stand before our Savior. Regardless how perilous the times might become and be, no matter how much hatred and vitriolic language is directed at us, remind us that what we're engaged in is a spiritual warfare between good and evil and right and wrong and righteousness and all manner of evil. They might target us, but they're trying to cancel you. Don't allow us to sit silent. We cannot be silent. May the truth that goes from our mouths be filled with grace, with a grace that only comes from God above through Jesus Christ. May there still be a voice that is heard that plainly declares the gospel and that men and women continue to come to know you as Savior and Lord. Bless us in this study as we sort out a lot of things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I shared with you last week that one of the dangers in studying a book like Galatians and the truth of the gospel is that when we look at the gospel in its purest form, there may cause some to question their eternal fate. Am I truly born again? I'm not sure that's a bad thing to do from time to time. What we're trying to do is not to take away in any way or get in the way of your security, but we will show you throughout this study and particularly at its conclusion where the security of your salvation comes from. And here's a little hint, nothing, nothing, nothing that you do, but only the truth of the gospel allows us to stand secure in a world that is so tenuous by nature At the same time, it will cause us to expose those who preach another gospel. Over the course of my lifetime and over the course of modern evangelicalism, we have continued to, in many ways, distort the gospel and begin to believe that all Christians and that group, certainly not monolithic, but has become bigger and bigger and bigger, are not agreed on the gospel. And I will show you why they're not agreed on the gospel. And why we need to be reaching those who claim the name of Christ but have the gospel all wrong. And we'll remind you time and time again that we must enter by the narrow gate, for the gate that is wide and the way that is easy leads to destruction. Some of us think, well, so what's the big deal? People get what they want. If you truly understand the grace of God and the gospel, you care. Because although we know they're getting what they want, we also are aware of what they can have in Jesus Christ alone, and it grieves our heart that they don't know. It grieves our heart that they're captives to sin. It grieves our heart that they're closed to the gospel. So as we reflect on that a little bit, uh, I wanted to start this morning by talking about culture wars that have been very prevalent in evangelicalism, at least over the course of my lifetime. But I also want to share with you that these culture wars have existed from the beginning of time. And because of where the world is and where the world is headed, we will continue to have these cultural clashes. I read extensively over my sabbatical. I'm going to share with the deacons in this coming week the number of books that I read and the things that I've gleaned but but you'll get a little bit of that over the next couple of months in our study in the book of Galatians one of the, one of the texts that I read that I found kind of interesting and it's a secular text was from Stephen Prothero Why liberals win the culture wars even when they win or lose elections why liberals win the culture wars. That was an intriguing thing for me, because I hear lots about culture wars, and we've not fared so well. In every culture war, when we conclude those wars, we have lost ground as those who believe the truth set you free. We've had to give up a little bit, and and because we've given up a little bit in each of those wars, these current wars so much more difficult to fight. He defines culture wars in this way. He says, so what is a culture war? In this book, the term culture wars refers to angry public disputes that are simultaneously moral and religious and address the meaning of America. Now, he starts with a thesis that these cultural wars have a moral and religious component to it, And the moral religious component that they have defines this this American experiment. But if we go back to the beginning, we will find that we're a far cry from where this whole experiment started and what used to define us. I'm not going to get into the politics of of all of that, but as he kind of sets his, his thesis in order, I thought, okay, decent start. And then it all came apart. He says that these moral and religious concerns, these cultural concerns, are filled with extreme rhetoric. And then I began to understand exactly where he was going with this book. They're filled with notions of no compromise and no negotiation and no surrender. There's only one way They're filled with truth and falsehood, good and evil. They manifest themselves through character assassination. And they have the inability to to determine that which is profound and that which is superficial. Now I agree with them there. Everything can't be a war and everything can't be a battle. We must choose our battles wisely, and there are some good choices to be made today. But when he defines conservatism and liberalism in the context of these cultural battles, the definition that he gave us mean, being moral and religious in their very essence, he changes his doom. And he says that cultural conservatism is filled with those who have anxiety over their beloved forms of life passing away. Wait a second. I thought this was about morality and religion and right and wrong. Immediately out of the gate, those who take the side of the right are, are filled with anxiety because they're clinging to these ways of life that aren't a reality anymore. Well, that's not the argument that you pose. That's not your thesis. It's not what you said you were going to do. But here's the big secret. He can't do it because there are no answers on the left. That's at the basis of their morality. There are no answers on the left as to the basis of why they believe what they believe. There is no absolute standard, rock-bottom foundational truth that they can rest in. So, they've got to change the argument. That's exactly what it does in his book. He's a very intelligent man, and I enjoyed reading what he said, but I knew exactly where he was going in the early pages of the book. Cultural conservatives, wait a second, I thought we were talking about moral conservatives. and You see how the the argument changed? That is their tactic. They pose the thesis and the argument, and then they change the rules and the very essence of the argument before you get involved in it. He says that those cultural conservatives have a commitment to restore what's been lost. He's not necessarily wrong there. And for everyone who's responsible for this loss, they will intentionally exclude you from full citizenship. They're bigots filled with hate, filled with discrimination. Cultural liberals, on the other hand, are eager to embrace new forms of culture. They believe in progress, and they don't want all of these people groups to be discriminated. Those are my words. He said, rarely are cultural wars resolved without some kind of negotiation. And there's the catch right there. Let's see if there's some things that we can agree on. There's nothing that we will agree on if this is a moral and religious debate. We can agree on cultural things, but there's nothing We can agree on because their source of truth and our source of truth aren't the same sort of truth. We're starting in different places. The propositions that build up our whole arguments are different. I posed to you today that the problem in, in evangelical Christianity that I can see all the way back into the 80s and even the moral majority is that we've made these cultural wars, but they're not cultural wars at all. They are truth wars. We need to change the language of the debate. We will get nowhere nowhere talking about the cultural norms or the drift in our culture. The only way that we make headway is if we make this about the truth. There's truth, and there's non-truth, and there's nothing in the middle. But he's saying there's lots in the middle. No, it's either true or it's not true. When is something not true? When it's not true. You say, well, what, the, what in the world are you talking about? Well, I got your attention at least. Pay attention. I'm going to show you how this all kind of transpires and how all of this kind of happens. We must engage, he says, these cultural wars upon a shared culture. We must talk like the culture talks and think like the the culture thinks or or will never resolve these issues. And then he makes a bold statement towards uh, the middle, toward end of the book, most high school students remain religiously and culturally illiterate. He is absolutely right. So, what is the problem? We've made the culture war about culture issues. We have made the culture war about politics. We have made the culture war about election cycles. And all of that has obscured the reality that this isn't a culture war at all. This is a war for truth. And we're in a battle for truth. And we have been duped with shiny objects led us to believe that it was something far different. Jerry Falwell, who established the moral majority, would later come, as many in the moral majority would come and say, yeah, we kind of missed we kind of miss that. This is not about politics or elections, but it is about education. It's about teaching people foundational principles that lead to conclusions that will eventually resolve some of these truth wars in this sense, you'll have to take a stand and no longer will we let you stand in the middle. You will stand for truth, or you will stand for untruth. There is no middle ground, because true, when deluded to be almost true, is no longer true. You follow me? So, as we look at all of that, he is absolutely right and spot on in his assessment, but his conclusions are wrong. In essence, if we want to make this too academic, and we don't, He's speaking of epistemology. How do we know what is true, and how do we know it? What is truth? That is the essence of these culture wars. Now, look at the text again in 2 Timothy chapter 2. We read 3, chapter 2. He says in verse 15, to this young pastor, do your best to present yourself to God as one approved, a workman There's no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. There there is a truth that you are entrusted with. But avoid irreverent babble, for it will lead people into more and more ungodliness. When we make this about the culture, not the truth, we get into these endless debates that resolve absolutely nothing, and we end up in a debate defining life on their terms, not on our terms, because it's no longer about truth. It's about some culture, whatever that might be. You follow the line of thinking? That's a mistake. You're not going to win that. And we engage in this. We begin to understand some really important matters. Look at verse 26. Let's go back to verse 24. And the Lord's servants must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. And this kindness isn't Nice, thou shalt be nice. Remember, we talked about that last week. This kindness is speaking the truth in love, and they will never hear the truth through loving ears. We will always be perceived as bigoted and hateful and discriminatory, but they can't define that. They can't define me. I'm not going to allow it. I will speak the truth in love. I will teach. I will patiently endure evil. I don't like that part. I don't know about you. I don't like it. What do you mean? Patiently endure evil while you are correcting opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Now, he humanizes the approach to truth and the gospel in that text. They aren't your enemy. The evil one is our enemy. And the people that you are engaging with are captives. They're captives. They can't help themselves. They think that way for a reason. Their minds are not captivated by truth or the Word. It is captivated by the evil culture of the day. And the only way to release them from their captivity is not to win an argument, but to present the truth that is contained in the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, as Paul talks about those who have been taken captive, he says in verse 1, but understand that in the last days… There will come times of difficulty. When he talks about days, he's not talking about calendar days. He is talking about segments in human history, segments in the context of, uh, of the growth of this world that will be especially difficult. But I think he implies the more closely we get to the return of Christ, the more difficult things are going to become. And I think that's the age in which we're living today. He's talking about epochs or, or, or stages of history in which things were really bad. We think that we're the first ones going through this stuff today. Simply not true. The arguments and the cultural battles may have been different, but there's always been a raging battle between good and evil. Satan, thank God, whose head will be crushed by the Savior, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. But until that time, we're in a fight. So, he says, now, you're in this fight right now, Timothy. You're in a time of difficulty, and here's why. People will be lovers of self. Rampant narcissism defines our time. We hear all about love, but the truth of the matter is, the only person that we love is ourselves, and we expect everybody to love us as well. Lovers of money, proud, boastful, braggart, they exaggerate their self-worth, they exaggerate positions, they exaggerate everything, they're full fill, fill with, with, with boasting. That's what social media is all about, by the way. Nobody's life's that good. Everybody has issues, but they're braggers. Arrogance, self-exalting, what's in it for me? abusive, they have a contempt for the people who don't go along with their plan, people who don't agree with their opinion, people who don't see it their way, the disobedient to parents, sacrifice and the godlessness of this time in history in which Timothy is called to serve, it's the family, the very basic unit of the culture. The same battle is raging, raging in our culture today. They're ungrateful, entitled in essence. They're unholy. In essence, this term is lost sometimes in the English translation. They're filled with gross indecency. Committing incest and sexual debauchery. Tell me that does not describe our culture today. This has all become sensual. This has all become sexual in nature. It is a gross offense to the holiness of God. They're heartless. They don't have any natural affection. What is natural affection? It is given by God in the beginning. We'll talk about that down the road a little bit. They're unappeasable, simply says they're beyond reason. You you, you can't reason to a culture like this. One of the grave dangers of apologetics in our culture is this notion that somehow if we study hard enough, we can reason people to the truth. People don't come to the truth through reason. They come to the truth by the grace of God in Jesus Christ alone. It doesn't mean that we don't reason to truth. But this is not about you, and it's not about me, and we can't persuade them. And if we could, they don't want to hear it anyhow. These are the people who are out there saying, my truth. What a blasphemous statement. My truth. Get on board with my truth. You're a fool. You're a fool. I'll tell you why as we move through this list and the culture of the day. They're slanderous, diabolical, tied because, verse 26 of chapter 2, they're captives of the devil doing His will. They're without self-control. They're lovers of pleasure, inflicting pain and misery upon everyone who gets in their way. They don't love good. They're treacherous and reckless and swollen with conceit, brutal, malicious, resentless, and always on the attack, but they hate that which is good. They are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. To have the appearance of godliness. Do you see that in the text? This is really important. He will later make it applicable particularly to Timothy's situation. And he says there are gullible people out there who are bought into this godliness and failed to look below the surface. There's nothing godly about them. There's nothing godly about what they do. There's nothing godly about what they say. They're godless, and they deny the power of God. And then he says, avoid such people. Avoid them. What are we to do if we avoid them? I think this avoidance goes back to what he says in verse 16 of of this text. Avoid the irreverent babble. It's not going to work. They've duped you into thinking this is a culture war, and they've engaged you on their battlefield under their rules, and you're never going to win that. It is impossible so avoid them. Don't, don't get into these squabbles. Don't, don't do, what are we supposed to do? That's the beauty of the whole thing. When we look at these people, he says that they're ever learning and never arriving at the knowledge of the truth. They're constantly evolving and and growing and and engaged in in, in discipline and rhetoric and dialogue, and yet truth seems to be so elusive to them. In fact, because of that reality that they're ever learning and not coming to the knowledge of the truth, we must consider the very essence of their being. And what is that? They're captive. See how the text flows together? These are really important in, issues when, when we look at what he's saying in the text. They're captive. And how do, you, how do you get uncaptive? Great English, right? By someone who victoriously sets you free. That's not you. And that's not me. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul saying, hey, listen, we've been duped into these culture wars, but it's really a truth war in disguise. And because it's a truth war, and they're closed off to the truth, the only thing that we can do, isn't that funny, the only thing that we can do? He's not minimizing the gospel. He's maximizing the grace of Jesus Christ. The only thing that works is the gospel. We have to tell them the truth. And that gospel is simple and yet profound, all in the same way. Some of us look at those who are captive and say, well, it's not their fault. There's just evil forces out there, And, and certainly we can get through to them if we just reason with them. As Guinness says, at the heart of sin and disobedience, Paul says, is a flagrant Deliberate and continuing act to violences of truth. Sin and disobedience lay hold of truth, grasp it roughly, and will not let it be what it naturally is or say what it naturally says. In this way, the deliberate dynamic of unbelief is to suppress truth and to stifle truth and to hold truth hostage. She goes on to say, those who are captive gave God their consideration and concluded that God was unnecessary for their life. That is Romans 1, and we'll get there in a couple of weeks. They're not victims, and there's plenty of evidence in the Scriptures and under the truth that points them to the realities that we will be addressing in the coming weeks. So what are we to do with this gospel? Do we take it to the public square and engage the lunacy and the babbling? Big mistake. Do we take it only to individuals trying to convince people one by one by one of the truth of the gospel? Do we take this seriously in our families and in our churches? The gospel has got to be central to everything that we do. And the failure of the centricity of the gospel of Jesus Christ, on His terms, not yours, in many ways is how we got here. Woe to us if we don't preach the gospel. But for the church, woe to us if we don't preach it correctly. We want to make people feel good in their sin when they ought to feel rotten. They ought to be at the bottom of the barrel saying, who shall deliver me from this body of death? And then we say, Jesus Christ. This is the gospel. This is the hope, and this is the promise. And as we introduced last week, this gospel is in Christ alone. Neither is there salvation in any other. Pastor Jim, that's judgmental. Deal with it. It's truth. There's one gospel. If there's many gospels, they must be differing in power. There is one gospel, and it is the power of God unto salvation and that gospel is the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's in Christ alone. It's by faith alone. But don't we have to do something? The church, the modern evangelical church, almost crosses this line sometimes and speaks a gospel of works that is not about what you did or how you're serving. This is about what Jesus did in your life. End, stop, period. That's all there is. So, when we boast, we boast in Christ only. That's what Paul teaches us the Scripture. Woe to us if we don't preach it correctly. The gospel is through grace alone. You know what that means, right? Unmerited favor. You did nothing, 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 but somehow are recipients of grace. You stop and ponder that for a little bit. Nothing, When I was dead in trespasses and sin, God made me alive unto God through Jesus Christ. How? Grace. Giving you something you didn't deserve. The gospel is for the glory of God alone. We mentioned last week… Marcy Sproul's Commentary on Galatians, if the church triumphant is ever going to be a church triumphant, it has to first be a militant church. We are an army, and we are in the middle of a war against spiritual wickedness in high places. That is serious, serious stuff, and I suspect that eventually I will bear some of the consequence for that in a world that doesn't want to hear it. I don't look forward to that day. I can boast that I'll stay faithful to the truth even in the middle of that day, but time will tell. Am I resting in a gospel that is in Christ alone, through grace alone, by faith alone, for the glory of God alone? Or am I resting in a gospel that somehow has been modified for my own liking, that will define who wins and who loses in this cosmic battle of good versus evil? I'll tell you the end. For those who hold to the gospel of Jesus Christ alone, they win to the glory of God alone. So, why once we take this gospel to a world that doesn't want to hear it? Bodie Walken says, because people suppress the truth in unrighteousness. That's Romans chapter 1. We'll get it into that in two weeks. Number two, even after conversion, people struggle with sin. Remember what we told you last week? Simon Eustace, Hypecator, at the same time righteous in Jesus Christ, but sinner, still struggling with sin. Isn't that what you know about your life in Christ? Anyone still battle with sin? Nobody? Amazing. You had nothing, 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 fight all you want. You can't win that battle. Jesus Christ has won the war, and that's why the gospel matters. He also says that we must persuade people, not because they suppress the truth and righteousness only. and not because they continue to battle in sin even after being converted, but because they are engaged in a spiritual battle with the world, the flesh, and the devil. The consequences of this truth war are eternal in nature. And I'm not sure that some of us get that. We say that in our conservative language, but if we truly meant that, wouldn't we be about the business of persuading? of telling the truth to a world that is marching headlong into the pit of hell. Well, pastor, that's exactly what they deserve. Stop it. That's exactly what you deserve, but by grace you are saved through faith. You follow me? How much and how indifferent do you have to be to people? But that doesn't, doesn't matter. As we look in the context of this battle, We'll remind you again as we, as we kind of wrap up. I hope we wrap up. I have a lot more. Our job has never been to extract a profession of faith. A profession of faith has never saved anyone. Only Jesus saves. I'm not looking for a profession I'm looking for the clarity of the gospel that presents salvation in Christ alone. I know more people than you can imagine who made the profession, and everything about their life tells me they're still captive to sin. Everything about their life. There's been no freedom. They've not been rescued. And maybe it's because we got the gospel wrong. One of the most haunting texts in the Sermon on the Mount, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And the people there say, well, what, a, what about what I've done for you? You see how they slip works into that whole thing? said, I never knew you. It doesn't matter what you did. I never knew you. And that is the gospel that we might know it. Listen, in this truth war, there's this notion that it's possible for me to create my own truth and it's impossible to ever find a universal truth and those who claim universal truth only do it to exert power over us to keep us under their thumb welcome to the philosophy of woke christianity you you just want to exert power over me no i am desperate for you here to message about your, your soul in captivity and the answer that is in Christ alone. there's notion that truth is constructed individually and even socially in, in, in context. And if you reject anyone's truth, their truth, my truth, your truth, that's stupid truth. You're intolerant. Have you ever heard the phrase, total depravity? People are depraved everywhere. They're filled with all manner of evil and wickedness. They are totally depraved in that that wickedness has affected every aspect of their humanity, not just a little bit, but holistically. How does Paul say it to this young Pastor Timothy? they're captive. They're captive to the evil one. They're captive. They need to hear the truth. They need someone to rescue. That rescuer is Christ. but, But how can they hear about that rescue unless we speak and unless we move forward, unless we tell them the truth? And the world screams at us, what is truth? Perhaps you're not familiar with a man back in the 60s and 70s and 80s by the name of Francis Schaeffer. Our circles didn't look that kindly on Francis Schaeffer because he didn't look like us. He had long hair. Oh, God forbid. He had a goatee. Didn't dress in a suit and a tie. He lived in a commune in Switzerland called Le Bray in which he would minister to... The student's disillusion at the world that they received in Western civilization, and, and as a populist apologist, he would, he would bring them along and help them to understand there's no foundation to what they're telling you. It's, it's not truth. And he coined a phrase called true truth. You ever hear from the, about that? Now, I'm disappointed if you haven't because I mentioned it in the last week's sermon. What did he mean by true truth? He meant that there are some things that are true all of the time in every age, in every culture, in every epoch, they'll never, ever change. It's always, 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 always true. And he accused the evangelical community of moving away from that. In his first book, The God Who Is There, says that the greatest threat to the Christian church today is this change in the concept of truth. He is saying that truth went away from absolute propositional truth to somehow this intellectual engagement of reasoning together to determine what the truth might be. He talked about this line of despair that we cross over, and when we give up true truth, absolute truth that everybody knows is true, there's no going back. And towards the end of his life, he wrote a book called The Great Evangelical Disaster, And he showed that evangelicals gave up on true truth, trying to reason with the world, and the consequences were 2 Timothy chapter 3. Do you follow that whole thing? So, in true truth, he came up with this witticism, and make your head hurt, I'll give it to you anyhow, it is not the truth if it does not and is not. What in the world are you talking about? It's not the truth if it doesn't correspond to the things you know are reality. Let's, let's put this to the test. Is a boy, a boy and a girl, a girl? Or is there in between some endless deviations between boy and girl? He said the culture knows a boy is a boy and a girl is a girl. It, it's true truth. You can't get around it. The OBGYN doctor, upon delivering a child, says, Oh, look, you have whatever it is you put on the birth certificate. No, it's, it's a boy. Or it's a girl. It's true truth. We can't get away from true truth. True truth is that which corresponds to reality. It is objective in nature. Everybody knows it. Why is it that all nations of all eras believe that murder is wrong? Because it's true truth. The law of God's written on their heart. They know inherently that it's wrong. It's those things that we must tap into, it's those things that we must address in this, this conflict of, of truth. And we must give up on this notion that truth is relative to what I believe and what I feel, and embrace that truth is only truth if it's accurate and reflects the way things really are. Paul is telling Timothy in this text to get back to true truth because he's going to tell us in verse 10 and on we to find the source of truth, and we know where He takes us, right? So, as we wrap up here, we'll look next week at the following verses, but know this. Truth is not your truth or my truth or anybody else's truth. True truth is the source and the foundation of life as we know it. Ten million ignorant assertions, even when magnified and accelerated in a hundred million tweets and likes, still never adds up to the truth, never Never, never. But I have a thousand people who liked it. Well, they're just as stupid as you are. Do we still embrace true truth? I, for one, believe that everything in this book is true. I won't stop saying that till I die. Because if it's not true, then all of a sudden, I'm a little uncertain about everything. Then, then what is true? You see how that goes? You see where that takes you? You know why Christians don't have assurance of salvation? Because they haven't bought into true truth, and they followed another gospel, and you will never get assurance that way. True truth. Here's true truth. Those who God saves, He keeps, and no one shall pluck you from my Father's hand. That's true truth. And I take great comfort in that. So I can do whatever I want. No, that's that's not what he said. So stick with us. Because we're going to talk about that truth. True truth presents unchanging values in an ever-changing world. Some things always stay the same. They're the building blocks of culture. What are those building blocks? Christ alone by faith alone, through God alone, for the glory of God alone, through sola scriptura or Scripture alone. How do you know what's true? The Bible tells me so. Listen carefully. Francis Schaeffer did not say, that the Bible is exhaustive in everything that it speaks to about the issues of life. He didn't say that at all. It's not exhaustive, and there are some things that we have to figure out on our own. But when it comes to the things that matter most and the core principles of life that can only be found and contained in true truth and the pages of the Word of God, and if you start to think biblically and scripturally about all of life under the sun, then you'll be able to sort out the rest of this nonsense— But not if you make it a culture war. We will never win a culture war. This is a truth war. And the truth will set you free, and you shall be free indeed. No authorities are ever infallible. All must be subject to the supreme and final authority of the Word and of the Spirit of God, the whole of the Word and the whole of the Spirit, and nothing less than the Word and the Spirit. For those who think that we are facing daunting times, and we're on the cutting edge and the cusp of something that's never been done in the past, remember, he begins chapter 3 by saying, there are seasons and epochs of time in which this battle has been fought over over and over and over and over and over and over again. We're going to look historically at the fight for the gospel, but I will remind you of a giant of the faith named Martin Luther, who at the Diet of Worms in Germany was called to recant everything that he was speaking about the gospel. What was he speaking? What's up on your screen right now? And they said, recant. Recant and recant. And he responds, unless I am convinced by the testimony of Scripture or by clear reason, for I do not trust Either in the Pope or in the councils alone, said it is well known that they've often erred and contradicted themselves. I am bound by the Scripture that I have quoted, and my conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot, and I will not, precan anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against my conscience. May God help me. Here I stand. I can do no other. Amen." And I pray that by the end of our study, that's where you stand. And if you stand there, that you might know that you have eternal life, and know that that life is in His Son, and no matter how bad things get, we win because of the grace of God in Jesus Christ. Now again, it's just an intro. Stick with us two more two more weeks of intro. But critically important. Take some time today to think about true truth. What is it that you rely on most in the midst of some of the most crucial times of life? There's only one thing that will not let you down. It is true truth. Father, may we find ourselves there unapologetically hanging on to that truth that sets us free. Skirting these culture wars with an awareness that this is a truth war and knowing that there is only one true truth and may we be those who promote and speak and teach that truth. No matter how unpopular it might be. Find us faithful to the end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.